Every oh, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Melinda. If we haven't met before, and it's my pleasure to read you from read to you from the Word tonight. A uh, little bit different tonight. We're going to start on page 974 with Hebrews 11 um, verses 8 through 19. Then we're going to skip across to verse 39 and then through to 40. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Across to verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mel. If you'd like to uh, open your Bibles to page 16 now, go all the way back to the start of the Bible, page 16 is where we'll find Genesis 23. And we're going to be looking at 23, 4 and 5. And they're not going to be on the screens. So uh, have your Bibles open, you'll be able to follow. There's also an outline that you'll be able to follow along. And for those of you under 18, yes, we have chocolate if you manage to fill that out accurately. We'll see how that goes. Now let's pray as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all we've seen in the life of Abraham and Sarah that has disappointed us, that has encouraged us, that has spurred us on to live for you because of your love, your faithfulness and your enduring grace to sinful people like them and therefore us also. Uh, teach us today from your word so that we might finish our earthly race, as did Abraham, trusting you, loving you, obeying you, and risking everything for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, yes, as Sarah mentioned, today we conclude our journey with Abraham and hence the reading from Hebrews that we had that captures all those big moments we've looked at over these nine, ten weeks we've been looking at this. And as was declared in our reading, Abraham grew to live a life that was characterized by his trust in the faithfulness of God. It could be said that Abraham became the first Rick Astley Christian. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around and hurt you. Uh, <sighs> that was a challenge I was given. Uh, for those of you wondering why there's laughter, besides the fact it's a weird thing to do. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, unlike Rick Astley, Rick Astley uh, so much so Abraham followed God that astonishingly, God himself is not ashamed to be publicly known as Abraham's God. Did you notice that in that reading? Oh, that's mind-boggling. Now, we've examined this growing relationship of faith over these nine weeks as we followed his life from age 75 in chapter, uh, back there in chapter 12 to chapter 22 when he was approximately 115 years old in that famous incident with Isaac that has been shown as a movie right now. The movie has just been released trying to portray that whole incident. And while God's glorious promises have shaped his life, Abraham's many flaws along the way, well, they've shown us also just how much he's like us he is and how much like us he was only ever successful because of God's faithfulness. God is the one who never gave up. God is the one who never let him down. And for us who follow Jesus, well, just as helpful for us as seeing uh, you know, God's faithfulness amidst Abraham's errors and uh, as a witness to all that happened in those early days when it came through all the way to Isaac's birth, just as helpful as seeing that is actually seeing the last 60 years of his life played out for us in chapters 23 to 25. This is now a mature faith lived out in the normal earthly challenges that are more like the things you and I face, more like the things that we're in. And especially noting that most of us have somewhere between 60 and less years to live, when we think about it, that's the zone we're in. We're all roughly in the last 60 years of life or near it. So let's check this out together and have those church Bibles open as I take you through these chapters. I'm going to read them as we go and just comment along the way. A bit of a tour guide kind of approach tonight. We start there, 23 verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. And this is significant. So, so important is Sarah that no other woman in the Bible has her age recorded at death. None. No other woman. Such an example was Sarah and remains Sarah that the Apostle Peter in chapter 3 of his letter, Peter encourages all Christian women to live as Sarah did. Though kings had fallen madly in love with her because of her external appearance, Sarah is commended by Peter as being the most beautiful woman in all the Bible, not because of external things, but because of her inner beauty, that of a gentle and quiet spirit in which she put her hope in God as wife to Abraham in all those testings. 
However, like all of us, Sarah wasn't perfect. The wages of her sin were death, just as they will be for us, and she died at age 127. And that means that her death, if she was 127, Abraham is 137, 10 years older. Isaac is 37 years old, and they both deeply mourned her passing. Verse 3. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. And those words should be ringing in our ears, shouldn't they? If you weren't here last year, we studied 1 Peter. Those words, a foreigner and a stranger. Well, that description, not only was it true of Abraham then, it's true of all Christians today. It's how the New Testament describes us while we wait for Christ's return. We are foreigners and strangers here. This is not our home. It's a lovely stopover. It's a beautiful place. Our home, though, is the heavenly city to come that was mentioned in that Hebrews reading. That's what Abraham was living for. That's what we live for. And understanding this truth, well, Abraham learned to live by faith and not by comfort in what he could gather around him in those moments, to live not by sight but by faith in, well, in what God had promised. And so he approaches the Hittites. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Well, Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Well, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he'd named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field were deeded to Abraham and his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Now, these negotiations for us as we read them, oh, it's just a bunch of history. And why is even this even recorded in the Bible? All this stuff about this burial site, strange, amusing perhaps. But significant things are going on here. If something even random like this gets recorded in the Bible, significant things are going on. And significant things going on here is the thing that we should be noticing. Did you notice where it was? It's Hebron. This is a Hebron. The place at Hebron is the centre of the land, which is the place where, as we've seen in Abraham's life, he's seen great blessing in the past. 
And Hebron would, in fact, become very important in the future history of Israel as the place where royal kings would be confirmed. And though Abraham bowed before them, not like a king, Abraham here is declared to be a royal prince among the Hittites. And so, of course, they charge him like royalty for the burial plot and the field. 400 shekels of silver, roughly four and a half kilos of silver. At the time, roughly 60 years wages. That's a lot of dough. That's an exorbitant price. But still, this was the Middle East. And in actual fact, they expected Abraham to bargain Zohar down. So why doesn't he? Why doesn't he say, you know, 400 for that? You must be mad. I'll pay you 50. 50? You, you try to rob me? 350. Oh, 350 for that? You must be mad. And on and on it goes. But he doesn't. Abraham pays more than what the field is worth. And he does it for two reasons. Two reasons. Uh, one, so just like with the, the king of Sodom back there in chapter 14, it could never be said that Abraham had been made rich by the Canaanites or anyone who lived in the land who might later dispute his rightful ownership to that land. Oh, it was, it was a gift and he's just taken advantage of us. No, they could never say that. And secondly, too, because 60 years wages is nothing in the light of the promises of God. Even if it made him a, perp, a, a pauper, it was worth it because Abraham's treasure was in heaven, not in the silver in his pocket. Abraham is just like you and I as Christians today who give money to church, who give money to missions, who support things all over the place because our hope is in the promises of God and not in the security of our bank balance, but in Him, in Him who has given us the promise, who is building a city in which we will have eternally. And so Abraham buries his beloved Sarah in the cave at Machpelah near Mamre at Hebron, a cave that will become the family burial plot of faithful Israelites for centuries to come as they each look forward later to what God would provide. And so with Sarah's death, what's next for Abraham? Well, we find out, chapter 24. Abraham, now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Oh, okay, that, that's fine, but hang on a tick. What's with the whole hand under the thigh promise? What's that? Well, interestingly, the, it's not just a weird thing to imagine, it's even weirder. See, the translators of our Bibles are a little bit squeamish on this one. What it really says is genitals. Yes. Why his genitals? Well, because in the days where power it was determined by offspring, then the source of such power is the place to make a binding oath about the future of such offspring. Abraham's focus here is to ensure that the future of God's promises were not sullied by a 
poor choice of expedience, but the, the servant would be bound by a very serious oath to follow through on the instructions, because it would have been so easy to find a local wife for Isaac. I mean, he, he's a prince there, clearly well-known there, clearly rich, not hard to find him a wife locally. And it would have been even easier to take Isaac away from the land, back to the old family, to you know, perhaps get a wife from there. But to do so would be a denial of trust in God who had provided what he had promised. Isaac in the land, those three promises, blessings, a land, and descendants who are going to own that land. So don't take the descendant out of the land. And Abraham, therefore, uses all his power and all his influence to make that happen, to ensure it doesn't go wrong. And so he does the unthinkable. It's one thing for Abraham to trust God, but now he passes that trust on. He asks his servant to trust God. He asks his servant to trust God the way he trusts God, to do what God would promise. Verse 5, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore on oath to him concerning the matter. Now clearly, the servant's doubtful. He can see all kind of flaws in Abraham's plan. The kind of flaws in God's plan that you and I are quick to see aren't we? Oh, what if this and what if that? All the what-ifs that come up that cause us to doubt and then just be disobedient to those things. But at least he starts down this track to see if it's going to play out. So this faithful servant to his master, he goes forth now bound to this earth, bound to this earth. Will God bless the journey of faith in his promise? Will God bless this journey of faith? Will God really send an angel before the servant and the ten camels? Will he really do it against all kinds of impossible odds of a 700-kilometer journey to a town they haven't been to for decades, a town that actually isn't a town, it's just where Nahor lives? A lot of odds. No wonder there's a lot of doubt. So what happens? Verse 10. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, Naharaim, and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneeled down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring. And the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. 
Now, clearly, the servants followed the directions of Abraham to the letter. He's made it that 700-kilometer journey, like it's, it's barely a verse here. That's a long journey, okay? We're talking a long time later. He makes it, he makes it. And now he sets out this guidance prayer, asking God to, you know, this kind of test for God to lead him to the right woman so that he'll know which one to ask. He's in the right town, but which one? Which girl? And what a bizarre test it is. He's not looking for a miracle. He's not saying, you know, the girl that walks out with a halo around her head, Lord, make it her. No, it's... He's looking for a particular type of woman. The first woman who agrees to give me a drink of water and then who offers to put petrol in the tank of the camels, let her be the one. How's this a useful test? I know when I went looking for a wife, I had very different criteria. I would have appreciated a free tank of juice, but you know. Well, for Abraham's servant, what did this mean? It meant that the woman coming out, well... For a virgin woman to accept such a request from a strange man and give him a drink would mean she's gracious and would mean she is hospitable. At the very least, it's going to mean that. And for her to offer to water the camels would have to mean that she is healthy, hardworking and exceedingly generous. Now, we know this because of how much water is required to fill a camel. Anyone ever filled a camel? I haven't either. So what I'm told... Well, and also, how long it takes them to drink, right? And how big is Rebecca's water jar? You know, she's a young woman with something carried on a shoulder. So this, we're not talking, you know, a 44-gallon drum here. Uh, to achieve what he hopes would mean this woman would have to commit to a task that would take around two hours to complete, would, res- would involve roughly 80 to 100 trips back and forth from the well, depending on how dry those camels were. Ten of them. In which case, the servant was indeed looking for an extraordinary woman to become the new matriarch, Isaac's wife. And God delivered on that prayer. Verse 15. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Naor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar and came up again. How's that for God's timing? You know, it, it means that God had moved Rebekah to go out with all the other women immediately at the beginning of the prayer, because all the girls were walking out as he started praying, remember, and... He finds this girl. And and even though the servant wasn't looking for a fast result, he didn't say, make it the first person I meet. Still, the angel of the Lord provided her just as as Abraham had told the servant that he would. And so verse 17, the servant hurried to meet her, one amongst many, and he said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my Lord, she said, quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched closely, watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Now we rightly you know, think that he should get off his lazy behind and help her, shouldn't he? Two hours' work we're talking here. Come on, mate. But if he had, that would have ruined the test. 
He had, uh, sorry, had he helped Rebecca, he could not have known, he could not have been sure that the Lord had made his journey successful. His patience in waiting and watching is necessary. He sits, he waits, he watches every move until it's complete. Now, we mustn't be too hasty to claim success from God before a task is actually complete. We should be careful on this. Verse 22, When the camels had finished drinking, then the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a beaker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. That's a serious amount of jewellery, if you're wondering. But still the servant doesn't know who she is. Now, we know because we were told earlier in the text, but she didn't actually have a sign, you know, I'm the daughter of Milcar. She didn't come out like that, right? He doesn't know who she is yet. What if she's not a relative of Abraham? What if she's just a really nice girl? Well, then the gift would be for nothing and he's going to have to go through this all again. So then he asked, verse 23, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. And is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcar bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as a room for you to spend the night. Bingo! Eureka! Or at least that's what we might say. The servant's way more pious. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord. Verse 26. Saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. And as for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Well, the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he'd seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house. I have prepared the house and and a place for the camels. Bet you did. Laban, Laban, Laban. The money-grubbing, greedy, two-faced brother. Am I quick to judge? Well, we know lots more is going to happen about Laban. We've got to watch Laban. As soon as he sees the jewellery on his sister, we're told that here, he's there. And it's not that he beat his father, Bethuel, to it. No, Bethuel, by this time, was an incapacitated old man. But Laban is a greedy man worth watching. A greedy man worth watching. He will play a very significant role in the life of Isaac's son, Jacob, later on in Genesis. This guy is one we need to watch and watch his greed. And you see it here at this first moment. And for the man, so verse 32, he went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Men, tell us, Laban said. Now, refusing to eat like this from the servant, well, it demonstrates the urgency and the significance of what's going on here. He has found his prize, and he's not going to dally now with conventions so he can make sure that he does claim her quickly and nothing gets diverted. The power of the oath he swore to Abraham, what he's witnessed about God leading him to the precisely the right woman in precisely the right place, it's, it's driving him on. And so he tells the story. And as he does, notice how he tells it here. Notice the role of God's providential love and care at every point. Verse 34. 
So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, you must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, what if the woman will not come back with me? And he replied, my master, Abraham, the Lord before whom I have walked faithfully will send his angel with you, uh, with you and make your journey to a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan, from my father's family. You'll be released from my oath if when you go to my clan, they refuse to give her to you. Then you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring of a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. And before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I'll water your camels too. So I drank and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Oh, it's on his heart, isn't it? Laban and Bethuel answer, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Hooray. And now the eating and the drinking can begin, but not before God is acknowledged as the provider of all these good things. And that's what the servant does. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah and he gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. And when they got up in the morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. He's not going to be diverted, is he? But her brother and her mother, you know, having seen all the gold and the gifts and the riches this man could bestow on them if they you know, bargained with him for a little while, well, they reply, oh, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so. 10 days, and then you may go. But he said, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. And then they said, well, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. We all breathe a sigh of relief, and rightly so. So we've come to such a decision so quickly and without fear, we can only conclude that Rebecca is bold, that she is a brave woman of faith, that God has touched her heart and she is suitable 
for the family of faith. She's got to go. She's the one. 59, they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebecca and attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now, for those of you here tonight with a good eye and a keen memory, the hackles on your neck would have raised with that blessing that was just read out. These are the precise words of the promise of God regarding Isaac and his offspring back on Mount Moriah, 22 years previous, 700 kilometres distant from this moment. Turn back a chapter, you'll see it there. That they would possess, your offspring would possess the cities of their enemies. Friends, we must not fail to recognise God's hand. We get the detail. He gives us the detail that we might see and rejoice and know that God is in this. And yet the moments of coincidental providence, well, they're not over yet. Because next, Isaac and Rebekah just happen to meet the moment of their arrival in the land. So verse 62 now, Isaac had come from Beer Lahoi Roy as he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who isn't that man in the field coming to meet us? Oh, he is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so the baton gets passed to the next generation. The servant, remember, he had left to go on the journey as Abraham's servant. He returns successful and becomes Isaac's servant. Everything's changed with this fulfillment. And likewise, Rebecca took her place in the tent of the family matriarch. Not as wife of Abraham. Remember, Abraham's still alive. The family matriarch should be his wife. But no, no, not of Abraham, but as the wife of Isaac, the child of promise. And so what happened to Abraham? With the coming of Rebekah to Isaac and their move into the spotlight, we read now of Abraham's last curtain call, which reads like a eulogy combined with the reading of a will, highlighting the promises of God's blessing on the nations through Abraham. Verse 25, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak and Shuar. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Lermites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abadar, and Elderah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Now trace the names of these people in the Bible, and we'll find numerous nations later on in the Bible who Isaac's descendants are going to encounter 
And notice, if you will, particularly that Moses' wife Zipporah, Moses' wife later in the Bible, her name Zipporah, uh, is a Midianite. And it's her father who will help the Israelites as they wander through the deserts. Follow these people. Lots of interactions to come. But meanwhile, we should also note that not one of these descendants, not one of these other descendants receive any inheritance from Abraham. Verse 5. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts, gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. And as we should expect, God had the last word, bringing an end to the life of the father of faith, blessing Isaac in his place. Verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. Then Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son, Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahoi Roy. Well, like us and like Sarah, the wages of sin for Abraham is eventual death. However, he's buried in the cave at Machpelah next to Sarah in Hebron, and his bones remain testifying to the promises of God that defined his life and now his eternity. But what do we make of verse 8? Where it says, And he was gathered to his people. What people was Abraham gathered to? Such a strange thing, isn't it? This can't be speaking about his, the placement of his body in burial because he wasn't taken back to the family burial grounds, which had been 700 clicks away in Haran. Now Sarah's body is the only body that's present, and that doesn't match this statement. So who's the people that he's gathered to? Well, according to Hebrews 11 verse 40 that Melinda read out for us, well, I'm looking at those people right now. And they're spread throughout the earth. For the people who live by faith in God are those to whom Abraham is gathered. That's why the New Testament will declare and does declare that through Jesus, anyone who has faith in God is a child of Abraham. That's the people. And as we heard there in Hebrews 11, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us, gathered with us, would the heroes of the faith like Abraham, only with us would they be made perfect. So are, are we perfect yet? No. Well, at least I'm not. But according to the promises of God, we will all be made perfect at Christ's return to judge the living and the dead. The trumpets will sound, the heavenly city will descend from on high, all God's people of faith will be raised, perfected at last, and will come streaming into that heavenly city upon which Abraham died, trusting in God's promise to deliver. And if we die before that great day, Jesus assures us that all who have hoped in him will be gathered and comforted in the embrace of Abraham with whom we will be perfected later at Christ's return. As we saw with his other children, Abraham's blood relatives are distant and they're insignificant compared to the family connection he has to all who trust in God. 
And that includes you and I. We trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, who only through Him can we know the Father. And just like Abraham himself was raised up out of nothing to prominence in God's family, so all children of faith in Jesus are raised up by God from nothing. Just as John the Baptist declared we would be, that even the stones in the ground could raise children for the Lord, if the Lord so decided, well, indeed, he's gathered his people. Well, friends, the old saying that many say, it just isn't true. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't help those who help themselves. No, God helps those who entrust themselves to him, as did Abraham. And like Abraham, may it one day be said of you, of me, of all who trust in the Lord Jesus, that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. <clears throat>